prayer together. Let's pray. God, what great news it is that this curse of sin is broken. And where we were dead, we now live because it was finished upon that cross. Father, we praise you that you have accomplished all the work of salvation, all of the work of atonement, all of the work of bringing unholy sinners to yourself through the cross of Jesus Christ. So, Father, I pray that would be the very thing that we boast in this morning. God, I pray that as a church, we would boast in Christ's death, and that we would boast in his resurrection. God, I pray that as a church, we wouldn't boast in programs and in who our pastors and elders are or in money or in anything of that sort, but that we would only boast in the cross, as one of our songs said, and that we would declare the work of what the cross has declared to the world. It is finished. So, Father, I pray that in light of that, that you would draw people to yourself because of the beauty of the cross. God, we pray that we would boast in the cross, that we would declare it was finished in our daily lives as we interact with our neighbors, as we interact with family members and friends and our coworkers, that we would be quick to tell people of the work of Jesus Christ and who he is, that people may come to know him in salvation. God, we pray that in our witness and in our evangelism, that would be the cry, that the work is finished, that we would tell people in power and in truth and in spirit of this great news of the gospel. God, we pray, even as we pray now, that we would declare the work of the cross in our prayers. God, that we would be quick to give praise and thanksgiving to what you have done in the cross as a church body. Father, we love you, and we are so unbelievably amazed at what you have done in a simple thing that meant death. God, you have turned it for good, and you have turned it for our salvation. So we boast alone in the cross. And God, we declare the same work for those that would come to know you in faith, that their work is finished because it was finished upon that cross in our Savior, Jesus. And God, as we think about that work being finished, we thank you, Lord, that you, as that work is finished, outwork that salvation in many people. And Father, specifically, you outwork and display the gospel in different means and different categories. But particularly, God, you've done that in marriage. God, what a gift it is to have the ordinance of marriage the institution of marriage because of you, because of what you've ordained that marriage should constitute. So, Father, we pray for the marriages in our church. Father, we pray that you would strengthen all those who are married, that you would help them look to Christ, that they would submit themselves to Christ, that husbands would lead their wives as unto Christ, and that wives would submit to their husbands as to Christ as well, so that the mystery of the gospel might be revealed through marriage. God, we thank you for the gift of marriage. And Father, we particularly are thankful for a couple of couples in our church that are celebrating some significant marriages. Father, we don't pray for these particular couples just because they're celebrating an anniversary, but God, because of your faithfulness and your providence to them and the unique circumstances of their lives. Father, first of all, we thank you for Bob and Shirley Eben and for 45 years of marriage that you have given them. God, what a sweet gift it is for us to be able to know and to love Bob and Shirley. And so, Father, we pray 
that as we see the miracle of the gospel outworked in their marriage, especially in this time, as Bob battles with Parkinson's, and we see Shirley care for her husband, and we see Bob love his wife. Father, we pray that you would continue to work in their marriage to let them be a witness of the gospel in their marriage. God, we pray for them that as they walk through very difficult days, that you would give them grace in their marriage. And ultimately, God, that you would heal Bob and that you would help him get all the procedures and different things that he needs to be well. God, we thank you so much for them and for your faithfulness to them in that 45 years. God, we also thank you for Tom and Judy Scarborough, who this last weekend celebrated 60 years of marriage. God, what a great gift it is. What a great gift they are to our church to be able to show what it means, that love that you had for us upon the cross, even when it was hard. Father, we think of particularly of Tom going through this cancer treatment and how difficult that is on his body and on his mind. It's difficult that he can't even come to church because he has to be cautious with all sorts of different things as his immunity is low. Father, we grieve that. But God, we pray that in this season of marriage that you've given Tom and Judy, that you would give them grace as well in their marriage. God, that you would heal Tom from his cancer. God, that all the procedures and different medications that he needs, that you would take care of that. God, we ultimately pray that when the days are hard for Tom and Judy, as Tom goes through this treatment, that you would outwork the gospel in them. God, we love you, and we are so thankful for Tom and Judy and for Bob and Shirley and the way that they display the gospel to us as a church. In life and in death and sickness and in health and rich and in poorness, Father, we thank you that they made good on those vows because they ultimately placed their hope and trust not in themselves, but in Christ. So, Father, we pray that you would continue to make good on your faithfulness to them as they are faithful to you. God, we thank you as well for your faithfulness in speaking to us through your word. So, Father, I pray that you would do that right now. God, I pray that the words that we hear this morning from the sermon, that they wouldn't be my words alone, but that they would be yours. God, as I know Pastor Joel prays often, I pray that you would let the meditations of my heart and the words of my mouth be pleasing and honorable to you. God, we pray that you would work salvation because of the word of God not because of how fancy my words are or how fancy Joel's or James' words are, but that you would do that for the sake of salvation because of your great name, O God. So save someone for that purpose. Outwork faith by your Holy Spirit for your glory. God, outwork Christ-likeness and conformity to his image this morning for the sake of your name as we hear from your word. Produce a crop 30, 60, 100-fold in us for the sake of of your name. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. If you'll turn to your Bibles in Esther 6, it's going to be very helpful this morning as we begin there. While you're doing so, I'll read this poem. Out of the night that covers me, black is the pit from pole to pole. I think whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloodied, but unbowed. 
Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade. And yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments a scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. That poem may be familiar to you. Uh, it was written in the latter part of the 19th century by the English poet William Ernest Henley. And he penned the words to this famous poem entitled Invictus. And Invictus is an incredible poem. I mean, if I could read through that as time allowed, you would just pull out different things from each line. And this poem, its thrust is essentially talking about the human will and its ability to face adversity. Invictus is a Latin term, and it's Latin for unconquerable. And given all that the author, William Henley, had gone through, uh, for example, tuberculosis, losing a leg because of the infection of tuberculosis, that word is hard to say, and uh, losing a daughter, you can see just the resilience that William Ernest Henley had whenever he penned those words. It was a poem written by a man who faced insurmountable tragedy and grief and suffering. And this poem relatively was unknown for a while until Nelson Mandela revealed that this poem gave him strength as he was in prison for apartheid in South Africa. Again, I would encourage you to reread through this poem. And however inspiring this poem, Invictus, might be, I want to contend that the last part of this poem, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. It actually places before us a conundrum of sorts, especially for the Christian. There's a question that is raised as we hear the last two phrases of that poem. Who really oversees the cosmos? and all of the thousand forces beyond our control. William Henley, in many ways, seemingly tries to write God out of the story in this poem. But after reading this poem a lot this week, I must wonder, do we really have as much control as Henley places in this poem? Are we really able to will what the days of us hold and really be the masters of our own fate, be the captains of our own souls? Can we really control the billions of things around us that we do not even see or consider? What is the scope of our ability in that way? In our series in the book of Esther, a part of what the writer of Esther is trying to convince you of is that while not mentioned at all, the main character of this story is not Esther, is not Haman, is not Ahasuerus, is not even Mordecai. It is actually the Lord. And the Lord controls and orchestrates events, people, and circumstances and things while never being explicitly mentioned in this whole story. Unlike William Henley, the author wants you as the reader to know and to understand that God is the master of our fate. He is the captain of our souls. So, let's see how the author tries to convince us this week in Esther 6 this morning. Please read with me, starting in verse 1. On that night, being the night after these feasts have taken place with Esther and Haman, the king could not sleep, and he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the Chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands 
on King Ahasuerus. And the king said, What honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him said, Nothing has been done for him. And the king said, Who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's young men told him, Haman is there standing in the court. And the king said, Let him come in. So Haman came in, and the king said to him, What should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And the king said, and Haman said to himself, not the king, and Haman said to himself, Whom would the king like to delight? Whom would the king delight to honor more than me? And Haman said to the king, For the man who the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor, and let them lead, lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then the king said to Haman, Hurry, take the robes and the horse, as you have said, and do so to Mordecai, the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. So Haman took the robes and the horse, and he dressed Mordecai, and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house, mourning and with his head covered. And Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. We've entitled this sermon today, The Fall of Mordecai, or excuse, excuse me, The Fall of Haman. I think that's right. I can't remember which title it was. It's either The Fall of Mordecai, Rise of Haman, something like that. One of the two, I'm getting the words switched up. But as you can see, the trajectory of the story is changing significantly. In many ways, Esther functions like what we know here as a chiasm or a Hebrew hamburger. The point of the whole story is climaxing here in chapter 6 of Esther. And this passage is unbelievably ironic, and it's unbelievably intriguing. Over and over again, I don't know if you've noticed this, there seem to be these happenstances and these coincidences that just keep happening over and over and over again. And the pace of the story, it begins to quicken at warp speed compared to what we have been reading so far in the book. But in many ways, this passage, like last week, it leaves us on a cliffhanger. It leaves us wondering, oh my goodness, what's going to happen next? So, what is the point of this specific episode of the story? Remember, the author is trying to convince you overall that God, while not ever explicitly mentioned in this whole book, is present and is the point of this whole story. So with that said, here is what I think he's arguing for this week in the sermon, The Rise of Mordecai. Here's what he's arguing for. This is the argument. God is God, and we are not. I know it's a simple main idea, simple argument, but this is, this is it for real. God is God, and we are not. And in light of that, I think the author also wants us to make a very explicit application as well in light of that premise, in light of this argument. And the application is this. Humble yourself, lest you fall in arrogant pride. 
Humble yourself, lest you fall in arrogant pride. What we're going to do today is we're going to work through this passage. I'm almost basically just going to be retelling the story of this passage. And we're going to be working through it to help us see how we are not God and how God is God. And so the first point we're going to be looking at is in verses 1 through 11, we are not God. And then verses 12 through 14, God is God. So let's begin with that first point. We are not God. We are not God. As we enter back into the story, we find that King Ahasuerus, also known as King Xerxes, he can't sleep. He's having trouble falling asleep. We're not necessarily given a reason why, but perhaps he's, he's reeling from the events of the feast that Esther had with him and Haman. But to be completely honest, the author never privies us to that information. We're not really sure. Perhaps to aid in falling back asleep, or maybe for entertainment, he says, hey, bring me the book of the deeds, bring me the chronicles of the kings of Persia, and ha- have them read to me. Again, we're not sure why he picked this specific book. I don't know if you guys have read through First and Second Chronicles in, uh, in our Bibles. While unbelievably interesting, they can also be a little dull, so maybe it was just some heavy reading that was going to make him fall asleep. Who knows? Again, we're not quite sure why the king wanted this done, why he wanted this specific book read to him. And then verse 2 tells us that it was found about how Mordecai saved Ahasuerus' life from the plot of the two eunuchs that we found in chapter 2. If you can recall, in chapter 2, Bigthana and Teresh were going to attempt to harm Ahasuerus, to kill the king. But Mordecai, who is a part of the king's court, that's why he's always stationed at the king's gate, he hears about it, he informs the king, and then Ahasuerus, King Xerxes, has these two eunuchs who wanted to commit treason and kill him, he has them hanged upon the gallows for this act of treason. Again, though, we're not really sure or why or how they happen to come upon this very story on the night that King Ahasuerus can't sleep. Maybe, perhaps, Ahasuerus, just being full of himself, desired to have a bedtime story read to him about himself. I mean, at this point, if we trace from chapter 1 all the way to now, Ahasuerus really likes himself, and he likes outer appearance and outer beauty and things of that nature. So perhaps, as he was wanting to read this, maybe that's the intent. Again, we're not really sure, but they just so happened to land on the story of Mordecai saving the king. And from there, as they land on the story and recount what had happened with King Ahasuerus, things get unbelievably interesting. Ahasuerus is so moved by the story that he asks, has anything been done to honor Mordecai? And guess what he finds out? They're looking around. They're looking in the records. Nothing. Nothing has been done for Mordecai. And then this is where it gets really interesting. And the king said, who is in the court? Now look at this. Verse 4. Who's in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. Verse 5, And the king's young men told him, Haman is there, standing in the court. And the king said, Let him come in. Again, lest we just kind of glance and read over the details of these stories, we're going to miss out on a couple of things. So let's not do that. Let's slow down for just a couple of moments and focus on these verses. First, at this point, it's pretty much typical of Ahasuerus to be what I would call utilitarian. Whoever can help him, whoever can please him right there in that moment, depending on the circumstance, that's who he needs the help from. Ahasuerus 
over and over again, as we've seen, and this episode absolutely proves this as well, he's painted as a man who is controlled only by his desires. And he's tossed to and fro from whatever circumstance he finds himself in. Secondly, we should also not miss the irony of what's getting ready to happen. We've already read this story, so I'm not spoiling anything at this point. Haman comes to the outer court of the king, is ready to go in there with an agenda. Ahasuerus also has an agenda. Only one of those agendas is going to win out. And likely it's going to be the person that says, let them come in, the king. We probably know that Ahasuerus is going to be the one that wins out in that argument of whose agenda is going to be of most importance. And this is where we pick up in verse 6. Where Haman, as he comes in, he does not even get a chance to speak a word. He, he doesn't even have an opportunity to give this proposal to Ahasuerus. But instead is met with an ironic and almost comedic question from Ahasuerus. Verse 6. What should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And this is where it gets really hilarious, I think. And Haman said to himself, Whom would the king delight to honor more than me. Whenever we were reading this as a staff, you could just feel that awkward tension and that comedic just irony that was beginning to happen. Joel, whenever we were talking about this, was talking about how maybe Haman came in there, he was getting ready to speak, and the king was just like, no, shut up. I want to I wanna talk to you first. I want to tell you what we're going to do. Who, who, what should be done for the king to delight to honor somebody else? But I don't know if you guys can see this. Again, we have the privy of reading the whole story, kind of knowing what's getting ready to happen. But you can feel just that awkward tension, knowing that inner thought of Haman. Whom would the king like to delight more than me? And you can just feel like, oh, this is going to go really bad for you, my friend, right? I, I want to liken it to this. Recently, Laura and I have been watching a dating show, which I would heartily not recommend for your own sanity. But one of the worst things about watching this show with Laura has been the cringy confrontations of these couples. There are points in the show that I've, like, I've literally had to cover my face. I am so embarrassed for, for them. I'm just so like, oh, my goodness. It's like watching a car wreck almost at some level. You're just like, oh, my gosh, I can't do anything to stop this, and it's getting ready to happen. You can just feel that awkward tension that's growing. From my vantage point as the viewer— it's pretty easy to see where things are going to be headed. And I think that's exactly what we're supposed to feel here in verse 6. We know exactly where things are headed. And with that statement, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? We can already see that car crash beginning to happen. And it just gets totally worse. Not only can we see it coming, but the grave just keeps getting dug deeper and deeper. Haman, assuming that he is the man that the king wants to honor... He pushes all his chips in. He goes all in on what he wants. And, and he said that he would, give, he would give this man, if it was him, right, these things. First, a robe that the king has worn. Number two, a ride on the king's horse. Number three, I think kind of implied, a crown upon that man's head. And then four, one of the king's noble officials would dress him, put the crown on his head, put him up on the horse, lead him throughout the city, and proclaim to the whole city, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Thus shall it be done. I mean, you can just, again, it's like, oh no, Haman, this is going to get really bad for you. 
And likely that this noble official, this is kind of implied as well, this noble official that Haman desires to dress and to yell and proclaim all these honors, likely, guess who he wants that to be? Mordecai. This would be the craziest royal treatment that's ever been seen. In Haman's mind, this would be the highest honor that the king could give. Given all of these things, given these wishes of Haman, his mentality, his character, I want us to consider three things. First, I want us to notice, do you notice that everything that Haman asks and requests, all that he desires is actually the king's property? Do you notice that? I think it's significant. Perhaps Haman, in the wave of triumph he's feeling in chapter 5, all these things are going well for him at the end of chapter 5. He's thinking to himself, man, this is the only the beginning. This is only the beginning of my good fortune, and I'm just going to ride that wave. Wearing the king's robe, riding the king's horse, being dressed and led around by the king's noblemen would have been an honor unlike anything that we have read in the Bible. Friend, not even Joseph in Genesis, who is second in command in all, perhaps one of the greatest kingdoms ever in Egypt, not even Joseph had the honor and privilege that Haman is requesting here. Simply asking for everything from Haman was not too much. He wanted it all. And I want to pose, perhaps, that Haman sees this as an opportunity to take rule in King Ahasuerus' place eventually. I think he sees some writing on the wall of some sort, even though he's not seeing the right writing on the wall. I think he's seeing some writing on the wall of like, man, things are trajecting for me in a really positive direction. And it sounds like I'm going to be the one that takes over. This request was only the beginning of a desired takeover. Second thing I want us to notice, everything that Haman asked for is not only the king's property, but it's also hand-me-down. Pastor Joel talked about this last week. The idea of what a person wishes for, and let me reread this. Pastor Joel talked about last week, the idea of what a person wishes for reveals their character and their heart. If you were in Haman's position and you got asked that question, and you were going to make a request for anything that you could be honored for, why in the world would you ask for hand-me-downs? Even if they've been set upon the king, I know in ancient times that was like a big bestowment, but seriously, why, why, do you, why would Haman ask for this? Out of all the things that Haman could have wished for, he wishes for hand-me-downs that were the king's property. Sure, they, they might have given him the appearance of a king and He may have looked like a king, quacked like a duck, you know, all those different things. But it wouldn't have changed in any way the actual reality that he was not the king. Putting on a king's robe, putting on the king's crown, riding the king's horse, wouldn't have changed the reality that he was not the king. He would never be the king. Speaking of which, last consideration. I think this is an understatement of the year, but Haman certainly has a conflated view of himself, I would say. In a word, he's unbelievably prideful. And it's really comedic for us, knowing what we've read and what's going to happen, and to see how much Haman himself and believes himself to be the master of his own fate and the captain of his own soul. He is pushing all the chips in, knowing and thinking and believing that he has control. This conflated view, excuse me, inflated view of Haman, of Ahasuerus, 
in many ways, is supposed to be the opposite picture of what godly people are to look like. I mean, think about it. The way the author portrays characters like Haman and Ahasuerus are totally unrelatable and not even congruent with characters like Mordecai and Esther. While Mordecai and Esther have their own flaws, don't get me wrong, but we're supposed to be contrasting those four major characters and seeing this is what godly people are kind of supposed to act like, and this is definitely what godly people are not supposed to act like. As we have read, and what we'll read here again in a moment, this kind of mentality will be the very thing that begins Haman's downfall. I think what we see in Haman's character and in his heart is a grasping for the reins. It's a desire to act and to be like God. And things really don't work well for Haman because of the desire. Read with me in verses 10 10 and 11. Then the king said to Haman, again, this is just so hilarious, hurry, take the robes and the horse, as you have said, and do so to Mordecai, the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. So Haman took the robes and the horse, and he dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. And perhaps the most climactic point in the whole story of Esther, a great reversal happens. The rise of Mordecai begins and the fall of Haman is initiated. It was not only but a few verses ago in verse 4 and and perhaps as many commentators have suggested in 24 hours, this very same 24 hours, Haman was thinking, I'm riding this wave. I'm going to go kill Mordecai. I'm going to have him hanged on the gallows. It was a bulletproof plan. But in what seems like a moment, a flash of time, everything changes. The story takes on a different tone, and the plot twist begins. Now it is Mordecai, who truthfully just seems to be minding his own business and fasting on behalf of Esther, who will be robed with splendor. It is not Haman who will be riding through the city on the king's finest steed, but the Jew, Mordecai. It is Haman who will be the noble official who dresses Mordecai and proclaims throughout the city, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. It's supposed to be ironic, but we are supposed to see that things have changed. This is the crux of the story. The trajectory of the story of Esther is beginning to change. I think there's one major and important thing that is important for us to see and understand in light of the beginning of this reversal, this dramatic change of events. This is what we're supposed to see. How dangerous is prideful mentality, hearts, and desires? How dangerous is this? I mean, how often do we see this same kind of prideful mentality and thinking like Haman in our very own day? How often do we see someone like having rocket fuel strapped up to their back be sent up to the stratosphere because of all sorts of different things? They go viral on the internet. They get all this fame, all this money, all this fortune— only to eventually see, within what seems like a matter of days, their total demise. I want to ask you, do we see this very same kind of mentality in Christianity? Do we see this perhaps in ourselves? Friends, this is a tale as old as time. And the author of Esther wants you to see this very, very very clearly. Pride comes before the fall. 
pride comes before the fall. Mordecai, for what he did in chapter 2, should have been praised and honored immediately. But he wasn't. Instead, he just went back to his post and, and went about his business. The only thing that he got from being honorable was actually the extermination of himself and the rest of his race. Even in the middle of this potential extermination of his own people and his people's lives, he was still at the king's gate, going about his business, fasting. Haman, on the other hand, as we see this contrast, he did nothing. He, he didn't do anything. And by being more and doing more than nothing, than just being second in command, he gets more and more. And his pride grows more and more. And the more Haman received, the more he desired. This poison of pride corrupted him so much that as we, obse- as we have observed in this chapter, he tries to take on the role of God by being the master of fate, not just for his own life, but for others' lives as well. And just like that, just like in Genesis 3, as we see that pride begin to sink in to his heart, just like that, he's reminded that he's not God. Christian, take care and remind yourself that you are not God. Humble yourself before God because of this reality. Believing that you have any ability, like God, in your mind to control your own fate and to be the captain of your own soul is poison. It is poison that will ultimately lead to your downfall. This is what the author of Esther wants to warn us as readers from. Taking on and playing the role of God, thinking that we have the mind and the ability of God, just like him, is dangerous. And as it was for Adam, as it was for Pharaoh, and as it is for Haman in our story this morning, it only results in downfall. Which brings us to our second point. Humble yourself, because you're not God. Remember, only God is God. Only God is God. Read with me verses 12 through 14 once again. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate. But Haman hurried to his house, mourning, and with his head covered. And Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. As this reversal continues in our story, we find the tension of Esther in this story only ratcheting up more and more. Mordecai goes back to the gate, likely because the reality of the decree that all of the Jews should be killed, it's still weighing on him. He goes back to the gate just to go back to his station, probably to fast and to pray some more. Haman now, I don't know if you see this, but in chapter 4, we saw Mordecai taking on this role with sackcloth and ash and mourning and lamenting. We see him taking on the role of mourner in chapter 4 for Mordecai. But now, look who's mourning and having his head covered. It's Haman. Haman hurries to his house lamenting with his head covered, likely out of embarrassment and shame. And he informs his wise men, his friends, and his wife. And they suddenly have changed their tune of what they're saying to him. Look with me at the end of chapter 5. Chapter 5, verse 14. Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Let a gallows fifty cubits high be made, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman, 
and he had the gallows made. That's what it was at the end of our chapter in chapter 5. Look at the end of chapter 6. The tune has changed. If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. In almost a prophetic tone, the author uses the very same people who would have lauded Haman's rise, who would have lauded his honor, all this bestowment that has come from Ahasuerus. He uses these very same people in almost Shakespearean tone and fashion to foreshadow his impending doom. And we, the reader, at the end of this chapter, are left waiting in silence. Waiting. Friends, much of the arc of redemptive history and what that means is much of the way the Bible plays out as we read and hear about events and stories in the Bible is like this chapter. God seems to be, over and over again, being in the business of reversal. It seems like things are trajecting in a different way now that are hopeful. But we are left waiting. We're waiting to see what's going to happen next. And broadly, I think there's two categories that we are left in waiting with. We're either waiting in hopeful anticipation, or maybe, for some of us, like Haman, we're waiting in dreadful terror. Friend, I want to ask you, if you're here today and you see the events of the world in the invasion of Ukraine and all the terrors seeming to be in our world, how do you wait? What do you place your hope in? Who do you wait upon? Do you wait upon a a human leader that claims they can make plans and promises to fix it all and, and by implication claim that they are the master of fate, they are the master of the fate of the world? Do you put your hope in somebody like that? That really didn't work out for Haman. And it hasn't worked out historically, at least, for others like him. So, I want to challenge you. I don't think that's very wise. Maybe another option. Maybe you, you put your hope, you wait upon yourself. You, you know, though, that full well, that same pride that poisoned Haman and, and begun his downfall, and as we've seen Adam and Pharaoh and others, maybe in others in recent history as well, that very same pride is running through your veins. That poison is still in you as well. I wouldn't call that a wise option either, to wait upon yourself. So what do you wait upon? Who do you wait upon? Where do you put your hope? The author of the Esther indeed does want you to know this morning that you are not God. But more than that, a more important reality than knowing that you are not God The thing that the author of Esther wants you to know more than all of this is that God is God. And because God is God, that is where you should place all of your hope and trust. He is the one that you should put all of your chips in. He is the one that you should be waiting upon. If we remind ourselves of all the seeming coincidences, all the happenstances that happened in the first part of our passage— the more we take stock and we recollect all those things that happened in that passage, I think the more we'll begin to see that those things are not just mere happenstances. Instead, they look more like this thing called providence. Things working out to a a particular end, orchestrated by a hand. 
They begin to look like acts of a character who is not just simply behind the scenes, but is the one who is fully orchestrating and and directing events, people, circumstances, and things to a very purposed end. All of what is happening in this passage, friends, is meant to scream out to us as readers that the Lord is the one that is causing all these things. He is the one that is making Ahasuerus sleepless. He is the one that just so happens to put Haman in the outer court. He is the one that happens to turn the page for the king's men that happened on that story of Mordecai. God is the one that is directing and moving events, circumstances, places, people for his purposed end. This story is meant to declare to us that not only is God involved and that God is God, but that God is sovereign. It's meant to declare to us that the Lord of the universe controls all things to accomplish his plans and his purposes and his plans and purposes alone. To turn the tides of this story, just think about this with me. To turn the tides of this story, all God needed to do was to give the king a little bit of restlessness. And and what commentators believe to be a 24-hour period, everything changes because of that one little thing that happened. Everything changes for every single character in the story of Esther. And it's not Ahasuerus, it's not Haman, it's not Mordecai, it's not Esther, it's not any of their plans that work out. It is God. It is God whose plans went out. It is God whose plans that prevail. This idea of God's sovereign purposes being accomplished no matter what is plastered all over the Bible. What we read here is not a unique, isolated incident. What we see here is something that is totally in tune and totally obvious within the whole theme of Scripture that God is sovereign. But I think a great example of this is in Isaiah 46. And if you want to turn there, you're welcome to. Isaiah 46 is on page 607. Keep your finger on Esther 6. We'll come back to that. But Isaiah 46, and I'm going to begin reading in verse 8. It says this. This is God speaking about himself through the prophet Isaiah. It says this. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose, calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken. And I will bring it to pass. I have purposed it, and I will do it. This is the tone of who our God is. One who never lets a single thing slip outside the grasp of his control. He is purposed in his ends, he is purposed in his plans and in his will, and nothing can thwart those plans or that will. God is God, and God is God because he alone is sovereign. To my unbelieving friend, you might be here because someone invited you. Or perhaps, just like Haman, maybe you just found yourself so rapidly here all of a sudden that you were just here. In either case, I am so unbelievably glad that you're here. But more than that, I would hope and pray that you would see that you're here, not because of circumstances or events or anything like that. You're here because God wants you to be here. God desired for you to hear about him this morning. 
And he wants you this morning to place all of your hope, all of your trust in him, in him alone, nothing else. He wants you to place your hope in what he has done already to accomplish his greatest plan, what he has purposed already to his greatest plan of redemption. He wants you to place your hope in the fact that he is calling you out of sin and into faith in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Friend, place your whole trust and faith in God and repent of this kind of foolish mentality and thinking and heart that Haman, William Henley, and truth be told, all of us have had. Repent of that and come to God and God alone and trust in his plan and purpose for you for salvation. As I said earlier, there's a couple of groups that we're talking to. And at the end of our passage, as we see, we are left waiting on a cliffhanger. If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. While the tone of the story has changed, nothing about the decree for the Jewish people, nothing about what's meant to happen to them, nothing has been spoken into that. And we've talked to people that they're waiting upon that like Haman in dreaded terror. But there's still one more group that's waiting. This group of, of God's people, those who wait in hopeful anticipation. What do we do, friends, with a passage like this? What do we do with events and even things in our lives that keep us hanging off the edge? I think the message and the application is truthfully the same to those who are waiting in dreaded terror and those who are waiting in hopeful anticipation. We remind ourselves that God is God. We look deeply into Scripture and remind ourselves that we are not God and that God is God. We delight in the reality that we are not God and that He is. We soak in that truth. And we trust just as God took 24 hours to change the whole story of Esther and as it took a mere three days to cataclysmically change the whole trajectory of history, we wait upon the Lord and we say to ourselves, I'm not God, but you are. We rest in that. And as we wait, we know with hopeful anticipation that there is a day that we don't expect, that our sovereign and holy, holy, holy Lord will come to right all wrongs, as he will do, spoiler alert, in the story of Esther. We wait. We wait knowing that we are not God and that God is God. Until then, what do we do? What do we do, saints? Behold your God. Behold the one who would have moved heaven and earth to make sure that you would come to faith in him. Behold the one who knew absolutely no sin and yet became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. Behold the one who came in the person of the Holy Spirit to dwell inside of us so that we might have power as we walk through such dark days of waiting and hopeful anticipation that we might remind ourselves that we are sealed for eternity. Behold this God. Behold the one who died and rose again and is alive today, ready and waiting for the word of the Father for the perfect time to bring his rule and reign all of the earth to make all the rights wrong. What do we do? Behold. Behold our God.
Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for what you are doing in the seemingly insignificant things that we cannot see. And so, God, we pray that as we wait in hopeful anticipation, that we would behold you, that we would rest in you. For those of us that are saved, that we would know that we are sealed for eternity. And that because of that, God, we can rest. We can rest in knowing that we are not God and that you are. And while the days may seem dark and while the night seemingly has won, we can place our hope in a very similar figure in the cross, knowing where it looked like death had won, an empty grave declares that it was not. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.